Hi there, it's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio at www.freedomainradio.com. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this upcoming debate. I have to do a little bit of historical reconstruction here because there were some audio problems in the Skype cast which caused some dropped packets in the introductory speech or the introductory chat that I had to Sunday, September the 2nd, 2006, 4 p.m. call-in show. So I'm going to recreate what it is that I was doing, and then we'll move into a debate that was certainly quite a thrill for me, and I think will be very interesting for you as well. So the topic that I opened up with was this question. It's a definition that comes out of Maclean's magazine is sort of the Canadian equivalent of Time, so a Time Light, perhaps you could call it. And in it, there is an article called We Have to Defeat Fear by Alexandra Trudeau, who is the son of uh, ex-Prime Minister uh, of, think of uh, El Presidente with some maple syrup, of Canada. And he wrote, I thought it was a very interesting definition of terrorism. He wrote this I thought was quite interesting. Terrorism is a crime explicitly connected to fear. A terrorist terrorizes us. Granted, the word terrorist has been sorely sorely misused over the years, but in essence it usually means someone who uses violence or the threat of violence against civilians to try to influence political realities when other means of change are available. That's just wonderful. I'm just going to read that once more. In essence, it usually means someone who uses violence or the threat of violence against civilians to try to influence political realities when other means of change are available. Now, the topic then which we talked about on Sunday, which I'll try and encapsulate very briefly here, or at least the introductory words that I had, were to do with how we can look at our own state-run, state-enforced, state-coerced, state-monopolistic educational system as a possible definition or a possible institution which fits the definition. It is someone who uses violence or the threat of violence against civilians to try to influence political realities when other means of change are available. Now, certainly there are other ways to get children educated than forcing them into state gulags uh, at the point of a gun. And if the parents don't pay for the taxes, which are used to support state schools, even if they choose to homeschool, they are still required to pay these bills. And if they don't pay the bills to support the state monopoly, then they are thrown in jail. And if they resist the people who come to throw them in jail, as you normally would any other home intruders, then they will be gunned down. So I just think it's very interesting. As libertarians, it's a lot easier for us to see this kind of stuff because we're fairly well-versed in the basic reality of the state as a coercive institution. But if we think about this idea that terrorism or a terrorist, someone who uses violence or the threat of violence against civilians to try and influence political realities, I don't think that there's an intelligent person alive who could imagine, even remotely consider, the possibility that public school education does not do something to shape or influence political realities. When I went through, and I went through close to half a dozen public schools, and I guess one private school, when I was a toddler, because we moved around quite a bit, this would be up to uh, the time I graduated high school in Canada, 
I went through a, an enormous number of different kinds of public schools, and all of them had one and the same message. They would say the same things over and over again. Basically, um, the free market is unstable, government is required to save us from violence. In the absence of the free market, rapacious capitalists will take over, that government bureaucrats are required to help protect the environment, to heal the sick, to give food and drink and shelter to the poor, to uh, aid the elderly, the indigent, to bring justice to all the four corners of the land. And in the absence of the government and in the absence of bureaucrats and regulations and taxation that life would be a sort of Mad Max apocalypse where armed and shaven-headed gangs would roam the streets in bizarrely done-up Humvees (laughs) terrorizing poor innocent civilians. And it seems to me that that would be a fairly strong attempt to shape political realities, to influence political realities, to force-feed thousands upon thousands of hours of the most puerile propaganda into the minds of the young so that any time anybody talks about the possibility of limiting the coercive violence of the state in society that people have a knee-jerk reaction as if you were talking about returning to the days of slavery and women in chattel And that's a pretty strong way of influencing people's realities, thinking, uh, as most students, uh, almost all students of the public school system do, that before the government uh, expanded its mighty muscles of benevolence, there were children working in mines, and everybody was uh, sooty and grimy and coughing up their lungs and dying of black lung at the age of 20, and there were slums and there were Dickensian nightmares, and this was the lot of the poor until the noble guns of the state were drawn against the rapacious greed of the capitalist and blah de blah de blah and the, the, great, the great War was a capitalist thing in the 1914 to 1918 war, and then the Great Depression was a capitalist thing, and it was only saved by the war in the Second World War, and then, I mean, all of the same propagandistic nonsense that you expect coming out from any state institution, any kind of agency or instrument of totalitarianism, or the goal of totalitarianism, is basically around making people frightened of freedom. And of course now we have a wonderful war on terror, which is helping to accelerate that process even faster for the possible benefit of freedom in the long run. So I mentioned this uh, in the beginning of the show yesterday, and then I finished up with this point, and then we'll move straight on to the debate that I had with a very intelligent and erudite and and, uh, well-spoken gentleman who ran a a physics department, or runs a physics department. And what I said was, or what I put out, was something like this, and and this might be something to mull over. Um, We can't see, as a society, we can't see the violence that is inherent to all of our own institutions. I mean, with the exception of libertarians and some other uh, political philosophers. We really can't see, as a society as a whole, and we all know this as libertarians who speak in the social sphere, when you bring up the fact that the government is violence, uh, people are, are baffled, bewildered, vaguely guilty, because deep down they know the truth, but there is no conceptual reality to the idea. It's like, it's like bringing up the scientific method to uh, somebody living in the ninth century 
They really, they have no idea what you're talking about. And we, as a society in the West, are absolutely unable, in general, to see the violence that is at the core of the vast majority of our social institutions, especially, the, I mean, of course, those one, the ones that I'm talking about in the public sphere. Education, health care, roads, garbage collection, uh, tax breaks for charities, taxation as a whole, <laughs> all of these sorts of things. We simply can't see the violence that is inherent within these organizations, the violence that is at the basis of everything to do with the state. And so what I put out there to the listeners was the question... Do we think, as libertarians, that since our own society is so completely and totally unable to process the violence at the core of our social institutions, in the same way that prior societies were unable to process the concept of children's rights, or women's rights, or human rights extended to both women and children, which would probably be a more accurate way of putting it, or such a radical concept as uh, property rights, as, as borrowing or lending at interest uh, of, of perhaps the idea that slavery might not be the royal road to heavenly virtue. So if we are completely unable as a society to look at the violence within our own institutions, do we think that foreign societies have any more luck with this? And I don't know, I mean, because I've never lived, I've visited, but I've never lived in, say, a Muslim country. Do we think that when the average Muslim gets up and goes to the madras or talks to the imam or whatever, that he or she is aware of the violence within the institutions within his own society? Because it seems to me, if we who are far more free than the Muslim world, if we can't see the violence when we are not shot for speaking out the truth about it, if we can't see the violence within our own societies, it seems to, re to me to be rather a mad dream to expect or anticipate that uh, Muslims and communists and those who would do, uh, do us harm, you could say, that they have any clue whatsoever about the violence within their own societies. And, of course, if we can't see the violence within our own societies, we have absolutely zero chance, zero chance of defending ourselves against more violent societies. So I put that out as a question, not that I have a very strong answer for it, and then we entered into a most wonderful debate, which I will now let you hear. Thanks so much for listening. Oh, and by the way, I am also going to join the conversation just as this gentleman was complaining about the audio quality, so forgive me for that if you don't mind. Hello. Yes, I'm hearing you, but occasionally it is cutting out reasonable portions of time, so my mind is having to fill in the gaps when you're um, constructing you know, that phrases. You might be a whole lot more intelligent than what I'm saying, <laughs> so that might actually work out. It's kind of like a gestalt approach. Is, can I just ask, whilst I'm talking to you, if there is one unifying theme to this Skype cast, or is it just whatever kind of uh, philosophical debate emerges, or is it mostly, it sounds like you're talking a lot about economics. Uh, no, what I'm doing is actually going to be, I'm talking about definitions of terrorism. Okay. This introductory chat up, and then I'll open it up. Uh, all right, well, we'll have to press on. I'm sorry that if a few packets get dropped, we shall do our best to try and uh, fill it in, and maybe what I'll do is have a nice, exciting go uh, after I've, when I deal with the recordings, 
to try and uh, fill in <laughs> the appropriate words, but it would seem to me fairly certain there's an enormous amount of work done in the state educational system to obscure the brutal violence that is the nature of government and also to exaggerate the threats and dangers of the free market. And I think that when you look at this definition of terrorism, it's kind of hard for me not to sort of believe or not to see that state educational systems in particular do conform to this definition of terrorism, that terrorism is someone, a terrorist is someone who uses violence or the threat of violence against civilians to try and influence political realities. Now this idea that when other means of change are available is nonsense. The state is a self-perpetuating, self-controlling mechanism and there is no capacity uh, for states to shrink in size. They just never do. I mean, very occasionally at the end of a war they'll do it, but that's only because they need taxes to pay off the war debts. So I think that it's sort of an interesting approach. When you ask people or when people talk about the war on terror and when people talk about the dangers facing us from outside our own societies, I think it's very important to ask for a definition of terrorism. And I think that any definition of terrorism that you're going to come up with, using force to influence political goals or change political systems or influence people's thinking about politics or this society, it's very hard for me not to understand how you wouldn't innately include within that government-run domestic educational systems. And so the war, of war on terror, I would say, would be far more profitably pursued against our own state-run institutions, particularly those that influence and, I would say, destroy the minds of children, which, of course, pretty much is the most precious resource that any society has, is the minds of children, which, of course, go through this horrible grist-of-the-mill situation with state-run education. Hello. It, it really is... Uh very frustrating because um, I'm interested in hearing what you have to say, but the proportions between the dropped packets and the received signals kind of swung in a very bad direction so that I was not hearing you more often than I was. So that was, um, I'm, I'm getting threads of your thoughts there, but not understanding what the origins of some of your ideas are. And, and uh, you know, I don't. I think people may have left the Skype cast. It says on my system we've only got one now participant. Participants. Is there anyone else here? I uh, guess uh, mine says there's uh, eight people in here. Ah, uh, okay. Well, okay. I'd like to say uh, a couple of things. First of all, I'm a former scientist who now is an educator in the state system. So I'd be very keen on hearing what it was you were saying about what you believed was happening in state-run educational institutions in terms of destroying minds. Hello. I'm wondering if you... Did you hear what I said? I was just saying that in terms of my background, I'm a former scientist who now works as an educator in a state-run educational institution. So I'm very interested to hear, because I didn't earlier, it dropped out. I'm very interested to hear um, what it is you think is happening in state-run educational institutions that um, constitutes killing young minds. Well, I would say that first and foremost, the, the, the major problem, the ethical problem that I have with the state-run educational systems is the coercion, uh, the violence that really is at the root of their funding, insofar as if the parents choose not to pay for the state-run system, that they're going to get thrown in jail, right, if they don't pay the taxes to support the state-run educational system, then they're going to get thrown in jail. And what I find particularly problematic with that 
is that that's never communicated to the students, that they're there because they're forced to be there and that their parents are going to suffer significant sanctions, uh, you know, thrown in jail if the parents don't pay for the system. Well, and there is homeschooling as an option. I'm sorry? There is homeschooling as an option. Well, sure. And, and can you just tell so me which country you're from? I'm actually from uh, Great Britain, but I'm now residing in Canada. Oh, okay. Well, homeschooling certainly is an option for sure, but you don't get to not pay for the state system if you homeschool. So what would you propose as a viable alternative to that, bearing in mind that education is a costly business and it does need to be financed? Do you not think people should make a contribution, a uh, financial contribution to the system which is going to educate their progeny? Well, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's get into it. And I'm very glad that you're calling. And, uh, you know, we haven't had somebody who's defending the system. So absolutely, let's, let's, let's have it out because I think well, this I, is a I, very I will, I will defend whatever the contrary opinion is just because I like playing devil's advocate. <laughs> Beautiful. Okay. So we have Satan on the show finally. This is wonderful. I really appreciate that. Uh, you sound younger than I thought you would. <laughs> but the first thing that I would say is if you're going to use things like the, the terms like the words financial contribution, I'm going to start taking issue with that just sort of a, from a definitional standpoint up front. I mean, if I stick a gun in your ribs and say, if you don't give me, you know, 50 bucks, I'm going to pull the trigger, I don't think that you would characterize that interaction as a financial contribution, would you? So you're suggesting that integral to a definition of contribution is volition. Can you just tell me what name it is? Because we're getting some echo, and I just want to make sure that I can unmute you by muting everyone else. Uh, the name that you have in the, uh, in the Skype. Quinn of Quebec. All right, fantastic. One second. All right, baby, it's you and me staring each other down like gunfighters in the Old West. <laughs> so, yeah, as far as, you know, the, the, the problem that I have, and I would assume that you've been educated within a state-run system, is yeah. that it's hard for you, and look, I mean, I'm not saying that in any kind of disrespectful way, because it certainly was hard for me as no, well. No, I, I, can, I can preempt what you're going to say, that being a product of the system, it's hard for me to see beyond its presets and premises as I'm a product of the same system and that is in that in that sense a kind of self-feeding entity is that, am I right? No I wasn't going to get that abstract I was just going to say that it's hard to see the coercion that is the very, at, the, at the very root of it right? I mean we would be against something like a forced marriage right? That that if you have a daughter that she grows up that the state chooses her husband for her and if she doesn't obey the state then she's going to get thrown in jail we would consider that to be barbaric yes. but the state has no problem choosing uh, where the children get educated, how the children get educated, at what price the children, what subjects the children get educated in. And the parents have to pay or go to jail, and I would consider that to be as barbaric as allowing the state to choose your spouse and throwing you in jail if you didn't obey. But, I mean, let's, let's just widen this, because surely this is not a problem that is inherent to education. This is com when it comes to paying for any kind of services, be it people collecting your garbage or whatever. You know, we live in a society that, all right, perhaps in many ways it's a pseudo-democracy, and I, I believe it's a pseudo-democracy because I think that people generally lack the requisite intelligence or knowledge to make informed decisions. However, given the system that we find ourselves within, um, all of these services, be it from education to, you know, street lighting to, to maintenance of the roads, if we leave it to be volitional, and voluntary, and therefore, you know, we, we square ourselves with your um, definitional uh, problem that you had with um, that you had earlier. Then, I mean, how does it work? I mean, surely we end up with anarchy. We we just have uh, you know we explain the rationale to people, 
of, of, of making a financial contribution, we cross our fingers and hope for the best and just pray to God that perhaps we might get um, a financial budget consequentially that will permit us to, to deliver an educational program or to, to keep the streets clean. I mean, what, what is your alternative? I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Well, uh, I certainly would be more than happy to chat about the alternative, but uh, let, me, let me just ask you this. I mean, I'm guessing that if I – I mean, I don't sort of want to waste my time and give you an alternative that, that you know, if we don't sort of agree that the, pr- the, re- the problem that at least I'm trying to solve is an important one. If there's a way that these services, as you call them, can be provided in a way that does not require sort of a centralized coercive monopoly called the state – that would sort of be better, right? I mean, I'm not going to say that it would be ideal or that you then have to change your mind, but it would sort of be an improvement on things if we didn't have to point guns at citizens to get them to fund things. Uh, I, I will accept that, although I would, uh, I would try and steer away from language like pointing guns because uh, capital punishment <laughs> is still not really implemented very much when it comes to non-payment of school taxes. But, but yes, I, of course, it, it would be better. I mean, that's a utopian situation whereby um, you know, people in a living together in community will see the rationale of, of making contributions and the justice of making equal contributions and would therefore do, do that with their own free will. But I'm not sure in light of uh, you know, evolutionary biology, etc., and, and human psyche, if that's, that could ever happen. But carry on anyway. I'm interested to, to see where you're going with this. Well, I certainly appreciate that, and uh, you know, it's it's great to have um, uh, great to have you on on the show. I really appreciate your your perspective. Now, and, and again, I don't mean to sort of keep hip, hick, hiccuping too much at the beginning, but when I say point uh, guns at people, I'm not necessarily talking directly about capital punishment. But you know, if you take away the sort of idea or this concept of the state as some sort of entity that exists independently. I just uh, had a request to turn the volume up a bit. I'm sorry if I, <laughs> if I blast your ears. Nope, I simply can't. Anyway, I'll just speak up a little. If you take away this idea of the state as an abstract entity that exists independently of human beings, right? I mean, there's, there's no state that exists in reality. It's just a concept, right? It's like a country. It's just an idea. Then what happens in a sort of direct, physical, tangible way is if I withhold the money for paying my taxes to the state educational system, then I'm going to get a letter, I'm going to get another letter, and eventually somebody's going to come to my house to say, pay the taxes or we're going to take you away to jail. And they're going to be armed, right? I mean, is, is that a fair characterization? Okay, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll go along with that. That sounds like a reasonable line of logic. Now, I ha- certainly haven't entered into any kind of contract. I mean, I, I believe in private property, I believe in the free market, so... I have no problem if I, you know, buy a car and say I'll pay you later, uh, that somebody might come and try and collect. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly fine with that. But what I will say, though, is that if I do try to resist arrest, right, if, if, if I don't view the moral authority of these guys in uniform who represent something called the state which doesn't exist, if they come to my house and try and take me away when I haven't done anything, right, I, haven't just, I just haven't handed over money to people who I haven't got a contract with, then if I do try to resist arrest, if I pull out a gun, then I'm going to get shot, right? I think that's a reasonable assumption. I, I would strongly suggest that you don't try it. <laughs> right. Now, <laughs> I certainly agree with you there. I mean, <laughs> but, uh, you know, because otherwise I'll really feel stupid for having paid my taxes all these years, right? Because so, I live in Canada too, so I know a little bit about the, the tax structure here. Now, if I don't pull out a gun and try and resist arrest, as you quite wisely advise that I don't do, which I completely agree, then they're going to take me away, 
and they're going to throw me in jail where, you know, really nasty things overall are going to happen, right? And then if I try to, to break out, then they're going to shoot me. So, you know, in, in a lot of ways, this would just be called kidnapping in uniform. I mean, I'm not trying to sort of be inflammatory. I'm just sort of trying to make sure that at least you, even if you don't agree, that you understand the problem that I'm trying to solve. I, I certainly understand. I certainly understand the sort of uh, theoretical framework that you're that you're laying down. As you say, um, that's mutually exclusive from whether or not I agree with it. But I certainly understand what you're saying. So do continue. Okay. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Now, when it comes to uh, interacting in sort of a civilized manner with your fellow human beings, we would generally think. I say. I'm sorry. We would generally uh, think. I believe that if we could not have uh, guns. Pointed at people, but instead have a sort of voluntary mutual benefit kind of interaction, that that would be preferable, right? Again, I'm not saying that that this is you know I'm going to wave my wand and turn the world into this kind of utopia, Do but if we could possible? have, well, of course it's possible, and I'll, I'll give you an example of how human beings can work on disputes without uh, using weapons. Can I assume that you're not currently armed? <laughs> I've got a laser sight right on your forehead, so be very careful. Well, you know, you've got, if you've seen my picture, you'll know that's a fairly big target, so I'm sure you'll be able to... <laughs> well, I mean, my, my, let, me just, let me just say this. I mean, uh, my first question to you was, do you think it's possible, which is a very big, open-ended conversa- question and conversation starter in itself. But secondly, do you think the likelihood of success of such an arrangement is a function of population density and size of settlement because I, I think that when you've got a lot of people living together uh, as that number of people in, in, increases in some in a large conurbation I believe that the, the chances of, of what you're proposing becomes increasingly less likely uh, to, to, um, to succeed but anyway carry on okay no and those are certainly very valid questions uh, which I can certainly take a, a swing at to, to varying degrees of of satisfaction. But I mean, I do get this question quite a bit where people say, well, is it possible for human beings to interact in a civilized manner? And we're usually having at least what is for me a very pleasant debate at the time. So it seems like uh, people are sort of pointing at me and saying, is it possible for people to have fingers, right? So uh, it just seems like a little self-contradictory from that standpoint. But I I think if I can characterize your question, your question would be sort of, obviously, non-coercion would be better but there may be certain situations like education and roads and garbage collection and so on where coercion is the only viable solution for these kinds of things because otherwise society would fall apart, there'd be anarchy and so on. Is that, uh, you know, the violence is generally better, but there are times like too, too much non-coercion would be bad, right? Yeah, although I, I would say, uh, I, would, I would, again, I'm, I'm being a, maybe a bit, being a bit anal here, but I'd, I'd steer away from the word violence. Um, and I'd say rather than saying there'll be violence, there will be certainly a sanction of some sort because the violent part of it, I mean, using your kind of little uh, example there would be that if you resisted arrest and pulled out a gun, yes, of course, things could turn nasty. But, um, for example, I come from the UK where the police generally are not armed <clears throat> and so there would be no violence necessarily involved, it would, but there would be a sanction. There would be a consequence of your omission to contribute or to pay, I should say, because you don't like the word contribute. Well, but I mean, in England, even though the officers generally, and I come from the UK too, so even though the officers aren't directly armed within England, uh, I mean, they certainly call for armed backup if you have a weapon, right? I mean, uh, so yes, but without you see, a doubt, in, like if you... Sorry, yes, but in, both, but in both cases, be it your scenario taking place in North America or in dear old England, in both cases, it only get nasty in your, your kind of hypothetical scenario when you pull out a weapon. Now, 
in which case that's threatening and violent behavior on your part, which of course would be countered with some kind of similarly uh, violence and protective behavior. But I don't, I don't know, if, what I'm saying is maybe I shouldn't do this because maybe it's not allowing you to flow and, and carry on with your train of thought and your, your laying no, down no, of your, your argument. No, your questions are perfect. Your questions, I mean, thank you. Your questions are absolutely perfect. I'm certainly not, there's no point for me charging ahead if we can't sort of uh, do the basics. So your questions are absolutely perfect. I have no problem with them. In fact, I hugely appreciate them. So it, it's, just now, that I, it's just that I feel that to say that, that there's some kind of inherent terror and violence in the system and using this example of, of, of payment or non-payment of school taxes is perhaps let's, let's not say over dramatic, but I, I think it's just it's just easier if we say that there is going to be some kind of consequential sanction rather than than saying that this you know because you, you don't have death squads you know like you would have had in Nazi Germany or, or the NKVD or the KGB in Russia coming around you know the the back of utility vehicles with, with submachine guns, just you know, spraying bullets at any suspected non-payers of school taxes. It, it it's not quite as shockingly violent as as I, I believe you're uh, suggesting it is. There is certainly a consequential sanctions for non-payments, but I'm not sure if that equates to terror. But do carry on anyway. Okay, got it. Well, of course, now I'm going to have to ask you another question if you don't mind. So, uh, and this is a, a sort of a definitional question as well. If, uh, again, I sort of, I'm sort of a mugger and I slither up to you in a dark alley and I take out a little knife and press it against your ribs, but I don't stab you and I say, give me 50 bucks and you give me the 50 bucks and okay. then I walk away, no violence has actually occurred, right? Or there's been as a threat. Yes. But, but you, ha you believe that the threat is going to be enacted and that's why you give me the 50 bucks. And at that, that point, it's impossible to distinguish between the two because, it, yeah, and, 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 and of course, getting back to the theme of this, discussion, that's what one of the key features I would suggest is part of terrorism. It's the uncertainty that it breeds that gives it its, gives it its power. But, you know, but notwithstanding some, some guy, you know, who's, uh, you know, we have this, us Europeans, we have this, uh, sometimes this painting in our minds of, of um, you know, some, some, some rednecks in the USA, you know, these militia sort of elite, right. you know, guys who, you know, they've got all these shotguns and weapons in a gun-obsessed uh, sort of country. Notwithstanding those individuals who would start waving around some kind of magnum or something like that, generally, I'm not, I'm not sure if, you would, if it would be justified to use such dramatic language as a threat of violence if you didn't pay your school taxes. There would be a sanction. There would be... Um, a legal penalty, which may involve incarceration, but unless, unless you resist that, then violence will occur, right? Well, now we're getting into another difficult area. What do you, what do you, what do you, you know, suggest violence actually is as a definition? I mean, if if I'm an officer and I've been sent to your house to apprehend you because you have not paid your school taxes. If you run the other way, yes, I'm going to run after you. If you try and hit me, yes, I might pin your arms behind your back and put cuffs on you. But is that violence? I don't know. Well, sure. I mean, certainly if I do that, to, like let's just say I'm not an officer, right? Let's, and, you know, we can get into the definition of that in a sec. But if I just sort of come to your house and say, look, you owe me $3,000 because... Uh, I'm going to call myself the local government or something, and, and if you don't give me the money, then I'm going to drag you off and put you in my basement. I mean, I'm just sort of trying to take some of the mythology of the state and just sort of look at the sort of physical actions of human being to human being, that I can't unilaterally impose a bill upon you 
and then demand that you pay it. And if you resist uh, me kidnapping you, then I can shoot you. That would never be considered something which we would sanction from a moral standpoint from a private citizen. And I'm not sure why that would change because somebody puts a uniform on or somebody calls himself the government. I mean, maybe I've missed something here. I'm totally open to the opposite argument, but that's no, no. I but I, I understand entirely what you're saying. But I mean, I, I guess it goes back to kind of utilitarianist philosophy. You know, the greatest good for the the greatest number. I think if I think it's fair to say that if any individual within our society was to try and exercise the same rights and powers that the government or state has, then yes, that would seem pretty horrendous. Right, I can't but, go and declare war on Iraq, right? I mean, and, and well, you force you to pay for me to go and hire all of these. <laughs> Uh, or I, like, I can't force you to pay me to hire all these mercenaries to go and shoot Iraqis, right? That would be considered uh, like a kind of private mafia hit squad evil thing, right? And yeah. so the way, sorry, and the way that most people solve that problem intellectually is they create an entity called the government, which, of course, you know, epistemologically doesn't really exist, right? I mean, what exists is people, and there are certain people who claim to have certain rights that supersede the rights of others, right? So I'm Tony Blair, I get to do X, Y, and Z, but you don't, right? And sort of that seems to me uh, kind of like a recipe for long-term disaster, right? That kind of disparity of power. And it seems kind of illogical to say that certain people have these rights to do, you know, to charge taxes, to declare wars, to run welfare states, to run healthcare systems, which they specifically and legally deny to everybody else. Uh, that just seems rather sort of morally hard to, to defend and I would certainly argue, and maybe we can move on to this, uh, sort of the practical solutions that could be incorporated through a voluntary kind of mechanism, I think would be far superior. But do you not think that compliance with such a proposed putative alternative would necessitate a certain amount of intelligence, you know, kind of modal and level of intelligence in the populace that, that may not exist? You know, it, well, I mean, sure, you, but... You know, if I, if I, sorry, if I, if I can just... Sorry, sorry yes. Go no, go on. Well, no, I was just going to say, it certainly is the case that there is a bell curve of intelligence throughout society, and there's lots of people who, you know, can't make change for, a five, for five bucks without getting it wrong. And there certainly is uh, a, a risk which is easily identifiable if you're not familiar with the theories of saying, well, the reason that we have the nanny state is because people act like three-year-olds, right? So we, we kind of need to have social protections in order to avoid people doing damage to themselves. But the problem with that, of course, is that, you know, we allow people to have children, we allow people to choose their own spouses and so on, and surely those are very important decisions. So I can't really sort of understand, if we don't, uh, if we allow people to make very important decisions, choose their own careers, choose their university programs, choose their spouses, choose whether to have children and so on, if we allow people or say that people have the right to make those decisions, I'm not sure why they can't choose which garbage collector to, to, to come to their house or they can't choose which school to send, to their to send their children to. Because if the population in general is, is too stupid to make those kinds of decisions, then I can't imagine why you would ever support something like a democracy. Wouldn't like a total dictatorship of the intelligent in the sort of platonic model be the inevitable result? Oh, I believe a benign dictatorship is the ultimate form of government. Ah, well, now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> and I, and can, I, can I guess where you would be in the hierarchy of a benign dictatorship? <laughs> would you be at the garbage level or at the philosopher king level? Just kneel before your new leader and right. pledge allegiance. Right. You know, I'm picturing the postage stamp right now. I think you've got a fine profile for it. <laughs> I, no, got it. But, I got it. But okay. that, that's a hypothetical construct, and that's an ideal. I'm not sure if that's realizable in, in, you know, in actuality, but... Uh, you mean the benign dictatorship thing? 
Yeah. Because it usually tends to go a bit animal farmy on you. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, the old the, that old chestnut about uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Oh, for sure, for sure. Now, let me ask you, uh, if you don't mind, a couple of other questions before I'll open it up to other people. And again, I really appreciate. I, I do apologise to all other listeners if I'm hogging the uh, the floor. I'm sorry about that. No, this is don't don't apologise, boy. You know, this is two British people. They eh? both being hyper polite and and uh, and one person criticising the other for being hysterical in his definitions, which is totally understandable, right? <laughs> it took me a lot of overcoming my own British conditioning to see things this way, or to even communicate them this way. But do you think that um, uh, which do you think is more uh, more important, right? Food or education? Education. Well, I would say that education, you educate has people. Long-term, if you educate people, you service them with the abilities and the prerequisite knowledge they'll need to nourish themselves. It's like that old Inuit uh, phrase, you know, give a hungry man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a hungry man how to fish and you feed him for life. All right. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right uh, in the sort of larger societal sense. But let me sort of bring it down to the molecular level, if you don't mind. Um, do you believe that human beings have a more immediate need for food and water, or do they have a more immediate need for education? From a biological point of view, obviously, um, water and food. I'm right. just, can I ask you your name, by the way? Because there's someone here, Andrew, who's writing quite abusive stuff in the text. I don't know if it's about you or me, probably about me. Uh, no, it could be me. Andrew, be nice. Um, anyway, so I would say that uh, food is definitely more sort of an immediate requirement that people have than education. And so it would seem to me that if it's lo- – and, of course, people make really bad decisions about food all the time, right? You sort of have to uh, fly over the south of the U.S. so you can see the people from 10,000 feet. And so it would seem to me that it would be more logically consistent that if something that is very important and which people make bad decisions about should be run by the government, that the first thing that we should do is turn over food production and distribution uh, to the state. Does that, would that sort of make sense to you? Say that again. Since uh, food is a more immediate requirement for people than education even, and shelter and so on, that the, what we should do is not so much worry about education up front, but we should turn over food production distrib- and distribution to the state, as well as the building of shelter and so on, that all of these things should first and foremost be the responsibility of the state, and education sort of as we go forward. But So do, would you sort of agree that the logic of the position could be argued that it's more important to get the government to run food uh, production and distribution than other things? I'm not sure if that is the logical consequence, but I will for the moment agree and say yes. (laughs) Okay. Now, generally when the government uh, runs uh, food and uh, shelter in uh, in a society, right? So you think of sort of uh, Stalinist Russia in the 1930s where you have 10 million people starving, and then you think of sort of Red China in the 1960s, you have another 10 million people starving to death and so on that when the government does take over sort of food, shelter, and uh, the construction of buildings, that bad uh, things result from it, right? Okay. I mean, it's fairly universally true that when socialist systems try to produce uh, goods, that they do an inferior um, job relative to a free market solution. Yes. And I'm just wondering if you feel that something like education would be an exception to that kind of rule. Like if when 
Uh, I mean, you complained about the uh, stupidity of people, which I can certainly understand. Of course, all present company accepted. But if you well, think now, that apparently people... I am an idiot. Let me just remind you of that, according to the omniscient Andrew. But anyway, carry on. <laughs> it's all right. I'll open up Andrew in a moment, and you can show people what happens when you pierce the good British, uh, the good British uh, demeanor. But um, if <laughs> if it's the case that the government, uh, whenever government takes over control of an industry or a process, that the resulting uh, products or output is really inferior. You know, you've got two-hour lines in Russia. You've got people starving to death in okay. socialist economies. Do you think yeah. that education would be an exception to that? I guess um, it, what you're saying is is quite an enticing possibility. The, the point that if if it does in fact fall fall into that same pattern, that perhaps we are having an inferior product than what we might have an alternative model. But I mean, what are you suggesting? Privatized? Educational companies? Well, no, of course not. What I would—I mean, sorry—I shouldn't say of course not because that, not that was the, because that was the kind of free market solution to the problems you described in Russia. Uh, yeah, no. What I would say is, look, I have no problem with something called the government existing. Like, let's say you think the government is the best thing since sliced bread, and I'm a little bit more into uh, non-governmental or sort of free market solutions then it would seem to me entirely appropriate that you should send your money to the government and I should send my money to a private school to educate my children, right? So that you and I can agree to disagree about whether the government is good or bad, but it would seem to me that the real question then becomes, I'm not going to force you not to fund the government if that's what you think the right thing to do is. If you want to send them a check and you think they're the best solution for the problem, fantastic. My, my only question or concern comes around uh, people who then say, well, Steph, if you don't fund the government, then I want you thrown in jail, right? That's sort of where the major moral issue and, and productivity okay. issue comes for me, right? Okay. So I would say that, yes, absolutely. If you, if you think the government's great, send them all the money in the world. I think that the government is sort of a, a bad thing, uh, not just morally, but sort of from a, a, a product, productivity standpoint. And so I would sort of like to be free to educate my children in the best way that I see fit, whether that's homeschooling or a private school or whatever. So it's not really a question of privatization. It's just allowing people to make their own choices so with their own so money. So there's opt-out opt clauses available to the populace if they wish to, just, you know, to, to educate their children with some alternative and preferable method. Okay, fair enough. And I would so sort of... That, where does that, you where does that, that leave us? Sorry. Um, well, tell me what you mean by where does that leave us, other than in what we got well, into I mean, the utopia. <laughs> well, I know where I'm living now. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> okay, you, you, you're using this um, from, well, at least forgive me if I'm wrong, you seem to be uh, suggesting that this kind of inherent violence, as you describe it, in the States is in itself a form of terrorism. Yes? Oh, absolutely, for sure. I mean, if you say to children, you have to come to the state schools or your parents have to pay for the state schools, and of course, state schools are not neutral in what they teach. There is no neutrality, no value neutrality in anything that is communicated between human beings, I mean, around sort of ethics or politics or whatever. And so what I was talking about at the very beginning was that there's an enormous amount of, you know, I'm sure that you'll think, and I can certainly understand why, that the term propaganda might be a little bit of a, uh, I think you used the term dramatic, and I certainly understand that that is the case. But all the stuff that I learned in school uh, turned out to be false, right, about sort of history and about sort of economics and about the state and about politics and so on. Well, you're so speaking in absolutes now. All the things you learn? About... Not some uh, of the things you learn, not all of the things you learn. Sure. Um, uh, well, no, and that's why I sort of put the caveat in around the state 
and around uh, politics and so on and economics. That, and, and, uh, uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, sorry, but, but for you to arrive at that uh, position where you could say that everything you learnt was false, that suggests that you rather do know what the truth is by which you can contrast it. Yes, yes. I would certainly agree with that. Uh, yes, for sure. We, we I, I certainly don't, we, don't know all the truth, and, but and, I know certainly some and, of the truths that were told that were false. Well, now we get into arguments about what truth is. I mean, that sounds it sounds uh, wonderful for you if that is in fact true. At the same time, and, and please don't take this personally because we're talking in a kind of impersonal, objective way. It sounds sure. a bit. It sounds a little arrogant in, in in a sense. I mean, perhaps you do know the truth, and perhaps you know you do have an enlightened, dis, you know, disposition on these subjects. Some sort of epiphanic event took place, and these things were revealed. But for you to say that everything you learnt was false. In, 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 you know, almost in the same way, because my background is in science, I'm not a philosopher, but, but for, you, um, for you to say that it's false with the same kind of certitude and objectivity that I might say um, um, gravity doesn't exist is a false statement. You know, for you right. to have that kind of certitude, I, I find that quite remarkable. Right. No, I, I certainly understand that. But the only thing that I would sort of invite you to think of as a parallel, and I'm not going to say that this is going to be anything that's going to immediately convince you, but the way that people looked at theories of, of sort of physics and chemistry and biology and so on in the Middle Ages, and, and medicine in particular, of course, with the bleeding and the leaching and all that nonsense, the way that people looked at uh, the methodology that people used to understand the physical world in the Middle Ages was false. I mean, there was no experimentation, no scientific method until Bacon. Uh, there was, you know, just uh, people prayed for stuff. They, they consulted the Bible, and they asked the Pope, now, sure, they may have come up with a few things that were true, but that was all purely accidental. The fundamental methodology was incorrect, right? And so certainly within the social sciences, I would make the case, and I can, if you like, I'll put on the chat window, I've done a series of uh, videos on uh, metaphysics and epistemology trying to work on this very issue of dis dis sort of discerning truth from falsehood. But even if you say that I'm totally arrogant, and I can totally understand why... Sorry, I don't mean that as a, some sort of derogatory personalized uh, remark. Yeah, it, it's an I'm arrogant saying, perspective. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not you that's arrogant. It just seems an arrogant perspective. <laughs> I, totally un I, like, I totally understand that. But l let me just invite you. To, uh, I'll, just, I'll open up the board in just a sec, but I sort of just want to invite you for one comparison because it's not... Uh, I know this will be shocking to you, but it's not the first time I've heard that. And one of the things that I sort of uh, would invite you to maybe think about as far as arrogance goes is that I'm sort of saying that people should be uh, free to choose the education, free to choose the garbage collection, free to choose uh, what it is that they want to uh, pay their money for and so on, which I think is kind of humble because what I'm doing is I'm saying, like, I have no idea what is the best educational system for your children. I have no idea what the best way to collect garbage is. You know, the arrogance to me of the state, part of the problem is that there's a whole bunch of people saying, we have a one-size-fits-all perfect solution which is going to fit everyone, and if you don't pay for it, we're going to throw you in jail. Now, that perspective seems a little arrogant to me. What I uh, sort of approach in this kind of way is to say, well, I don't know what the best thing is for you. I don't know what is going to make your children the happiest. I don't know what your values are. You should be allowed to choose those. And that seems to me a little bit more humble. Now, the methodology that you have to approach that has a certain amount of, you've got to work on the philosophy and make sure that you're making sense. But I think the fundamental perspective of 
uh, a stateless society or a society that can run without a government is really based on humility because we don't know what other people's values are. I could never choose your wife for you, so why on earth would it be possible for me as a bureaucrat to choose the education that your children should receive? Well, perhaps the answer to that is in terms of the consequence for society as a whole. If, um, if you have a whole generation of people, um, I, I, I don't know really. No, forget that. That's a half-baked thought. <laughs> oh, no, but, give me a half-baked thought. Come on, give no, me something no, 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 to no. shoot down. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to put it back in the oven, and when it's baked fully, I'll, uh, I'll reveal it. Um, Fantastic. Listen, I'm going to – sorry, go ahead. You had one more comment? No, I, I was just going to say, I mean, obviously, you're um, an eloquent uh, – speaker and obviously well-versed in philosophy, um, etc. And getting back to the Gaussian distribution curve of, of intelligence, I'm sure if uh, people with similar levels of intelligence were all placed in you know, a certain locale, they might be able to rationally come to some kind of uh, voluntary libertarian society. But again, as a function of the fact that a lot of people aren't on those upper percentiles of intelligence, that's where I think the problem is. Do you think? Uh, do you think that the people? Do you think that the people who are in government are generally more intelligent and more ethical and more moral than the, the average population? We'll forget moral, if we may, for a moment. In terms of intelligence, if you could quantify intelligence psychometrically, which I don't believe you can. My background is neuroscience, by the way. Um, but if you could come to some kind of arithmetic, arithmetic average of people in power and you were to take an arithmetic average or a, a, you know, a normal distribution curve of, of the population in general, then I would certainly suggest that they would probably um, be skewed on that graph to the right, to the upper levels. Is that an unreasonable thing to think? I think I think you're right. I would certainly put George verbal W. Skills. Bush not included. We'll right. exclude him because <laughs> he might he might skew the data. He's got he's got excellent handlers though, right? And good speechwriters. But uh, I would say certainly in terms of verbal acuity, verbal intelligence, verbal skills, that people who are in politics uh, generally what do they call it? Showbiz for ugly people, right? So they they generally do uh, have very high social skills and verbal skills, social skills. Which is the type of intelligence if you look at uh, how for sure multiple intelligences. For sure. Okay. For sure. Now, would you say that, uh, and I know this is a, a dangerous question, you don't have to answer it at all, of course, but would you say that that virtue is associated with intelligence? Uh, I would say many people's is, but I'd say it's a false uh, association. I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, do you have to be intelligent to be virtuous? I don't know. I mean, Socrates said no one would knowingly do wrong, I think, if I'm paraphrasing him. But I'm not sure if that's necessarily the case. I mean, if you are... I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Well, certainly I would say that if you, if, you divine, if you define at least some basics around virtue having to do with something generally called the non-aggression principle, right, which is like don't kill, don't rape, don't steal, don't initiate force against your fellow human beings, you can sort of respond to force with self-defense, but don't initiate force against your fellow human beings. I would say that obviously then a person in a coma can be ethical, right, because they're not doing that initiating force against other human beings. So I think, you know, if virtue is like, you know, courage and wisdom and all these kinds of fancy schmancy things, which, you know, it may have certain aspects of, then intelligence would be sort of required. But if virtue is simply 
uh, at least the basis of virtue, basics of virtue is to not aggress against your fellow human beings, then I would say that until you get round to like 70 IQ or something like really barely functional, like uh, one step above the vegetable patch, then I would say that virtue is certainly within the realm or within the grasp of, of just about everybody. Yes, that seems entirely reasonable. Very interesting. Now, uh, so the last thing that I would say, of course, is that do you believe, if, if you believe that currently there are more intelligent people in politics, but they're not necessarily more virtuous, then it would certainly seem to me that you are not going to be too pleased with the current situation where a bunch of average intelligent people are voting to give over uh, their powers of sort of sovereignty and property to other people who may have more verbal skills than actual virtue. Well, of course. Right, so that's a bad system. So let me ask what you would replace it with. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't, I'm, I'm coming in here to, to listen to other people's ideas. I'm not necessarily coming in here, you know, to furnish uh, my own kind of grand, you know, unified theory or solution. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, I, personally, I, um, despite the fact that uh, you may not think so, because I've, I've already said I'm a scientist, I do have some spiritual beliefs, and I, I tend to believe in, in meta, you know, some metaphysical drives, which are, you know, conducive towards harmonious living. Um, it, it, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. I, I do believe, you know, if you, I mean, again, I'm not a philosopher, but I have, you know, read little bits, and, you know, if you if you read sort of Plato's Republic, you know, which you know many people would say is a kind of model of a of a Nazi state almost. Sure. Um, you know, you have this this idea of you know these these people in charge who are you know have got that greater wisdom, and obviously that's one extreme. That's one extreme on the continuum. But what's on the other end of the extreme? What, what I mean, how do you devolve power to the individual in this way? I mean, and bearing in mind that not everyone has a requisite function uh, in cognitive functioning to actually make right. And we we all have those deficiencies. Good. Right. We all have those deficiencies relative to particular skills, right? I mean, let's say that you and I uh, are probably, you know, 0.001% above the curve of average intelligence, or maybe even more. Well, let's be humble. Let's say that you and I are above the average in terms of intelligence. I still don't do my own dentistry. I still don't do my own taxes. And I still don't do my own surgery. Because even though I'm intelligent, uh, there is things that I defer to other people who are more expert. So even though we're very intelligent, we still generally tend to defer uh, things which we don't know to the expertise of others, and that seems to me quite quite a rational thing to do. But we don't do it at the point of a gun, right? We don't do it because we're forced to. We do it as a voluntary exchange of values. So what I think would be the best way in the long run to replace the existing system would be a system wherein there is no central government, wherein there is no central agency that claims or has the right to initiate the use of force, because that seems to me a very immoral action. And wherein, if there are people out there who aren't very intelligent in particular areas, as is the case, you know, Albert Einstein, you know, didn't uh, didn't rub his own back, right? I mean, <laughs> he's going to pay someone to do it, right? So we all have those deficiencies in particular areas. So we need a society where we're free to choose to associate with those who fill up our own deficiencies uh, with the division of labor principle. And what that means is a society where nobody has the right, institutional right, to use violence against other people because that, Plato notwithstanding, always uh, and universally seems to lead to corruption, right? 
we do know in history, and again, I try to work empirically, I have a master's degree in history, and we do know that in history, when coercion is reduced within society, society flourishes, right? That was the Industrial Revolution, that was the Renaissance, that was the Enlightenment. Uh, when coercion, when the ability to initiate force in an institutional way, through a state, through a church, through uh, organized religions of any kind, when that is withdrawn, society tends to flourish. And when a central organizing agency like the state, if you sort of think of communism or even the Muslim uh, countries, when that state takes upon itself the right to initiate force against its citizens, then society tends to diminish and become worse and worse and worse. And of course, the state continues to grow and grow and grow, just as the Roman Empire, the Greeks, the Macedonians, the, the uh, uh, Holy Roman Empire, all of these sorts of things, the government tends to grow and grow and grow until it self-destructs and usually creates something even worse after it. Like you think, after the hyperinflation of the 1920s in Germany, you had the Weimar Republic, which collapsed. And then we along came yeah. Nazism, right? So states are inherently cancerous, right? They're dangerous things to have around. You can certainly see this occurring within America, right? The empire, the massive deficits, the foreign aggressions. This is what happens when you give mortal, ordinary, fallible human beings these godlike powers to tax and control and coerce and enslave and two million people in prisons. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, at, at, what point, at what point does a leadership group or leader or whatever, uh, is, there a, is there a kind of mathematical relationship where over a certain number of people it, it now becomes a government or state? Because anthropologically, if you look in you know, all kinds of societies, primitive societies, sort of all different continents, etc., there is always leaders. There is always people who make decisions for the group, be it tribal leaders or chieftains or whatever. So it seems to be pretty much in the kind of uh, the psyche of man to have that arrangement. I mean, if you have a tribal leader, does he re is he now the state, or would it require a larger volume of people before it would kind of uh, have that label attached to it? Well, no, as, for me at least, uh, just sort of personally, and I'm not going to claim this as a universal definition because I don't think I've ever been asked this question before, so I'll just give you my first impressions and you can see if they're of any use. But uh, for me, uh, a state uh, is, is an imaginary entity that is, is created that doesn't speak for itself, right? I mean, this Platonic world, you're familiar with Plato, right? So Plato uh, had this idea that there was this world of forms or pure abstract concepts which didn't, couldn't speak for themselves. And so when you have an individual who claims to speak for the social good, for the betterment of society, for God, for the race, for Germany, or any of these kinds of things, and through that claims the right to initiate force against the unarmed or the innocent or those who are not initiating any force themselves, then you have a government, right? So if I'm taking you on a hike and I say, I'm going to be the leader, well, I'm not saying I'm going to be the leader because God tells me that if you don't follow me, I get to kill you, right? The <laughs> probably wouldn't be a hiking group that would last for very long. But if I'm it, to be a leader based on sort of I can add value because I know the hiking route is one thing. But if I'm a leader who claims the universal moral right to use force against others because of some abstract entity like a god or a government, that seems to me that's like a state or, or sort of an organized religious uh, situation. That to me would be where the difference is. So has, has any, I mean, you, you talk about uh, being an empiricist because you've studied history, um, which is a whole other area. I mean, can you, can you use history like science to actually extrapolate and, you know, have three points in a graph and therefore decide which way the graph goes? But anyway, that's another whole other conversation. But 
Um, getting, um, getting back to um, this idea of empiricism then, has there been any uh, states, or not state, has there been any society uh, to your knowledge that, that even approaches the kind of solutions that you would be comfortable with in human history? Oh, today? sure, absolutely. Absolutely, so what, yeah, what, what no, for sure. Uh, my house. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Actually, my wife is a, my, my my house is a female dictatorship on the Platonic model, so that's that's quite a little bit different. But, <laughs> benign, um, of course. Benign, absolutely benign and wonderful. But uh, no, I would say that um, when you sort of again, I can only use the broad sweep of history, and without a doubt, because history is sort of fundamentally a science about human life, or, or not even a science. It's a, it's a discipline around human life, so you can't expect the same degree of precision from a biological. Uh, discipline like uh, biology doesn't have to have the same level of precision as uh, physics right because there's lots of randomness in biology there's mutation there's all this kind of stuff right so as far as that goes you can only look at the broad trends in human society but when you look at examples like the growth of uh, the economy in uh, during the times of of the freest or, or smallest amount of government uh, government, uh, the, the, the reduction in the size of government is always, always, always uh, coincided with a growth in, no, but that, that's uh, not in the really economy. Answer, but that's not really answering the question, though, is it? Because you're saying when the state is smaller, it's preferable. But I'm sure. asking you, you seem to be advocating a no-state solution. Right. Are there any examples of this that you know there of? Is, well, sure. I, I'm sure. not talking about having a minimalist state with minimalist right. interference. I'm talking about the kind of you know real extreme that you seem to be pointing towards, which is having no state at all, because uh, I'd be interested to hear you know if, if you if you believe and feel that there have been examples of that in history. Um, sure. If so, what are they? And also, if so, if we kind of apply a kind of Darwinistic natural selection kind of philosophy towards governments, why did that model, you know, if it is the fittest, not flourish? Right. Well, look, for sure there has been no society in history that conforms exactly with what I think would be the ideal solution, right? So I'll, I'll absolutely grant you that one up front. I don't consider that to be a huge problem because until slavery was banned, there was no society in history that had ever not practiced slavery. So for me, that's not too too big a deal, right? Uh, before women were allowed to own property rights, there was no society in history which had an untrammeled right for women to own property. So the fact that it hasn't existed in the past doesn't mean that it shouldn't exist in the future. But I will certainly say that an example of a stateless society would be your life. And the reason that I say that is that um, – uh, are, you, are you married? I am. Okay, yeah, so you know what I mean by the, the benign dictatorship. That's good. So we're on the same page as far as that goes. But uh, now you didn't, uh, you didn't force your wife to marry you, I can assume. Uh, I plead the fifth. <laughs> no, <of course. laughs> you might have lied a little bit about your income, but uh, – <laughs> <laughs> Right, so, so you didn't force that. Now, you, uh, you currently work as a teacher, is that, is that my understanding? That's right, yes. Now, you didn't take any hostages in order to get your job, right? No, that, that, I didn't deem it necessary, but who knows right. what I was capable it of. It might occur in the future, but so far, <laughs> you're, you're hostage-free. You're a hostage-free life form. And, you know, I'm sure you get the general idea, right? You, your friends are your friends because they find, you know, value and so on, and you buy them drinks and you know, all that kind of stuff. But you are an example of how a non-coercive society can work and exist in that you don't use violence to achieve your ends. You don't go over and say to your wife, I'm going to drag you off like a caveman to my cave, and if you resist, I'm going to do whatever, right? I'm not, I'm not you so are sure an example of how that can work. 
I'm not so sure Sorry, that's true. Because, for example, I have people who answer to me, like my, um, let's, um, the, the teachers, because I'm head of department, who, who work for me, and I also have laboratory technicians who, who you know, it, you know, I'll ask them, would you please uh, make me up some potassium permanganate solution? Uh, and although I, you know, although I'm not pointing a, you know, gun with a silencer at their temples or whatever, they don't just do it because, well, you know, Michael's a nice guy and he always asks us nicely and he always reciprocates and does us favours. Somewhere, you know, despite the fact that I'm a very easygoing guy and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not very much of a person into instruction and direction. I do like to ask people rather than tell people what to do. But nevertheless, there must be some degree of their compliance attributed to the fact that they know that if they didn't do it, there would be a consequence. Now, what's the difference between that and the consequence that the average Joe will get if he didn't pay his school taxes? So uh, how am I different in that, in that sense? I'd say well, my life uh, you know, is a microcosm of, of, of a state society in that sense. Okay, can you can you throw them in jail? No, but they can lose their job. Well, yeah, but so what, right? I mean, that doesn't that doesn't mean that so what, uh, just because jail. you. <laughs> Sorry. So what going to jail? No, no, no. There's you. I mean, look. <laughs> if I, if I, throw someone, if I, I throw someone in jail, they have nourishment and they have shelter. If someone right. loses their job, then they have neither. Well, look. I mean. I'm just I've got to tell you, I, I know I know that you enjoy the devil's advocate position, but I think you might have gone just a little bit far by equating, uh, you know, getting fired with being thrown in jail. I know. Right? So well, I mean, it, right? <laughs> that, that's a very big difference. If you get fired, uh, if you couldn't get fired, you would have to use violence to maintain that right, right? So because all participation is voluntary. Like it's it's like saying if your wife divorces you, that's exactly the same as if she shoots you. Right? The two are very different. A marriage no, but, is a voluntary but, interaction between two adults, as is any kind of work relationship. But you seem Whereas to be dichotomizing this into into kind of a binary system whereby unless jail is at the end, um, then it's not defined as being coercive. But there's all kinds of interpersonal uh, coercion that goes on in families, in relationships, and although the the, the perceived Putative sanction that may be kicking around your subconscious may not involve vertical iron bars. Does that mean that it's it's not coercive? I mean, it, what I'm saying to you is your definition of coercion. Does it have to be something an act or a threat which which necessitates um, incarceration at the end? I mean, no, no mugging and rape, which would you know, if if I mug you, I'm not threatening you with jail, but I'm definitely initiating the use of physical force against okay. you. Okay, and 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 rape. And uh, mugging and jail, which are all pretty horrific outcomes, we'd all see obviously as, as things that are very unpleasant. But on a sliding scale, on a continuum, are there not things that are less dramatic and less wounding, but nevertheless are still used in a coercive manner? I mean, I for would example, be more than happy to entertain that thought, but you'll have to give me some examples because well, it's I mean, for a bit example, if, for me at if, the moment. if you uh, you come to you come to live in my town, you're a new guy. Uh, it's come to live in my town. You don't know anyone. You don't even know the language. I live up here in Quebec with his big friends. You come as an anglophone. You come here. You don't know anyone else. Okay? No one is, is is throwing you any lifelines. You know, to be integrated as a community. I come out and say hello to you, and I act as your translator. I help you with all your paperwork, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, if I ask you to do something for me, I um, I might not say to you, I might not say to you, well, look, if you don't reciprocate some of the favors I've given you, I'm going to rape you or mug you or throw you in jail. But nevertheless, there will be some perceived negative outcome if you are not to comply. 
Is that coercion? But like what? What negative outcome? Well, you might lose my friendship. You might be all on your own. Sure. I mean, I mean, you know, it's the idea of biting the hand that feeds you, as it were. You know. Well, let me you ask you this. I mean, I mean that, that's a very simple, off the top of my head example. Sure. I, I, I would suggest that in that situation, when given the kind of dichotomy of possibilities, yes, I will lend Michael my power drill, or no, I won't. I mean, it's a very right. trivial, minor thing that I'm just trying to think here. But you might be influenced in deciding which one of those eventualities you want to pursue with the possibility of negative outcomes, which could be the loss of my friendship, lack of ability to communicate with the rest of the community because of the language problem, um, losing resources, whatever it is. So does that mean sure. I've coerced you by asking you to, 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 to lend me your drill? No. No, not? absolutely not. Absolutely not? not. Because you're not initiating the use of force. Well, maybe not overtly. No, no, maybe no. Not not maybe right. not explicitly. Maybe not. Ex no, what look, I'm saying is, it, yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, no, let me let me just. Uh, I'll see if I can come up with a very short parallel. Uh, if I send you five hundred bucks a month out of the goodness of my heart, and you get used to that kind of income, and then I say I'd really like you to lend me your car for the weekend, with the implicit sort of frown or vague threat that I'm going to stop sending you the five hundred bucks a month, that's not coercion, right? Because the five hundred bucks a month, as is your time, your friendship is perfectly voluntary, and to withdraw a voluntary benefit that you're providing to someone is not the same as as you know sticking a gun in their ribs. What makes you say that? Well, because it's not. Because the, the, you can't the, the say person it's not because has it's not. You're a philosopher. <laughs> well, because to initiate the use of force against somebody is to threaten directly their uh, physical but, integrity, right? To stab you, them to to whatever, right? But don't you and think to a, simply a withdraw friendship doesn't threaten somebody's physical integrity. Well, I mean, it, it sounds like a very dramatic, if, if, it, if it would. But what I'm saying is, on a sliding scale, on a, on a continuum, perhaps there is coercion. I mean, again, what I'm seeming to be understanding from you is, unless there's something pretty dramatic, like you know, state stormtroopers coming to arrest you because you didn't do X, Y, or Z, then it's not coercion. But what I'm saying is, you, you, I asked you for an example of a of a stateless society, and you said that my life may in itself be a model of just that. What I'm saying to you is, many people do things for me, which although I'm not actually wielding a, an axe or, a, or an Uzi or you know, something pretty dramatic, they may be doing what I ask them because there is a perceived negative outcome, which may or may not be reasonably founded, and therefore that's just as much coercion. It's just, it's just to a lesser degree. It's just to a lesser degree. But if somebody does, like you, you say, you, you run a department, right? So if somebody does, uh, runs a lab result for you because you ask them to, they may, they may feel or believe, or you may indeed threaten them, that if they don't do it, you're going to fire them, right? Now, that is simply the withdrawal of a positive, right? Uh -huh. uh, an yeah, income, a job. As opposed to the presence of a negative. Sorry? As opposed to the presence of a negative. As opposed to the introduction of, like, they're in a state of dependence and benefit. Let's just say, I mean, I know it's the free market and you, you like them and they like you and so on, but let's just say, right, they are dependent upon you for the provision of a benefit. And if you withdraw that benefit, which you're perfectly free to do, as, you know, you can withdraw love from somebody who, you know, turns on you like a rabid dog or something, then withdrawing the positive from them is not the same as taking them from a neutral state and introducing a negative like, I'm going to, you know, blow up your dog if you don't do X, Y, or Z. But the absence of a positive is in itself a, neg a negative, isn't it? 
Uh, I mean, let's 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 take um, a topical. Oh, sorry. Uh, let me let me let me just give you an example from geology because I kind of want to nail this one. The absence of a mountain is not a valley, right? The absence of a positive electrical charge does not necessarily mean that it's a neg. I'm just using sort of analogies, and I know that that's not the same as a proof. But I think you're saying that the absence of a mountain is a valley, and I'm saying no, they're two. two no, no. I, I, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. You're looking for a polar opposite as opposed to just like zero on the sine wave. I understand what you're saying. But okay, let's take a topical example. I mean, you've you've strayed into my area, which is science, by using geology. So let me let me do that. Oh, back I shouldn't have come alone, should I? <laughs> <laughs> you be careful, boy. No, wait, wait. Let, wait, me, let, let me just let me just ask if there are any scientists on the chat room. Hang on. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> but um, but getting get, getting back into more of an example that would be more your territory in terms of you know geopolitics and sociology and economics, that kind of thing. Let's let's take um, let's take uh, this this big situation that's blowing up now with Iran, okay? Mm. If the rest of the global community says, right, from now on, you ain't having none of our food, you ain't having any of our trade, you're not having any friendship or favors at all, that withdrawal of a positive mm -hmm. is pretty terrifying when you've got children and women who are going to die, perhaps as a consequence. What? Sorry, what? oh, because you couldn't produce your own medicine or something? Or food? Well, if, you, if, if okay, if the economy of Iran, okay, is crippled to, to the point that its citizens are in a terrible state, you know, there's disease, there's food shortages, all kinds of things, that is going back to this idea of me and my life perhaps being a microcosm and an example of a stateless society. That withdrawal of a positive, which is voluntary, according to you, wouldn't constitute terrorism and wouldn't constitute coercion. Is that right? Well, sure. Let's let's imagine that that um, you so have when, a, a store in a town, no, and I, I choose not to shop. No, uh, this is this is. I sort of want to break it down to a minor because you're you're conflating a lot of things, right? And I just sort of want to break it down, and and then just sort of we'll get back to your question in a sec. If you have a store in my town, and I come and shop at your store, that's beneficial to you. And then if I choose not to, let's say you have a vegetable store, and then I start growing my own vegetables, it's definitely not beneficial to you. Uh, that I'm growing my own vegetables, but I'm, by not coming to shop in your store, I'm certainly not coercing or, or using violence against you, right? Yes, but in the example I gave you, <laughs> the compliance, for example, of the Iranian government okay, will, is, is basically being sought by the withdrawal of positives, which is what the United Nations will do. Well, yes, but you see, then what you're talking about is if I want to then trade with Iran, let's say that the, the Canada signs this UN treaty and bans all trade with Iran, which sort of make it up, right? Then if I trade with Iran, which is not a violent thing to do, right? The trade is not a violent thing to do. Then if I get thrown in jail for trading with Iran, then the problem is the initiation of force against me from my own government. I, I'm not so sure... How different they are. Well, and that's what I meant when I said you were conflating things, right? Because if everybody in the whole world voluntarily stopped trading with Iran, I mean, not that that would ever happen, but let's just say, right? Because, of course, when in the free market, when you stop trading with someone, the price that they bid for, for goods goes up until somebody will start trading with them. So it's not possible, but let's just say it was. If everybody just woke up in the morning and said, I don't want to trade with Iran, then sure, Iran's economy would take a hit and so on. But nobody should be forced to trade with anyone in the way that nobody should be forced to marry anybody or have children or not have children. But if the way that it works is, you know, Paul Martin, the Prime Minister here, signs a UN treaty that says any Canadian citizen who trades with Iran is going to get thrown in jail, 
then we're not talking about a situation of non-coercion, right? Now that a coercion is, if I go and trade with somebody in Iran, person to person, not using any violence under mutual benefit and contract, then if I get thrown in jail or threatened with jail for that, the problem then is the initiation of force against me, right? The, the, the problems that occur in Iran is simply a result of other governments using force against their own citizens to prevent trade with Iran. Okay, okay. But let, can, may I just radically double back on myself and go back to earlier what you were saying about examples? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Um, I asked you if there was any examples of societies that had a system which approached what you perceive as being an ideal, which doesn't have this kind of pervasive, uh, evil, terror-filled state. And your answer was, my life. But my life isn't a society, so that's not really answering the question. Are there societies in history, pan, you know, cultural, um, are there any in anthropology and anthropological history, are there societies that, that do not have um, any leadership at all, where there is no government as such? Yes, there have been those that have existed within society. Uh, for instance, in uh, some of the original American colonies, there were certain states that had absolutely no government for up to about a dozen years until the federal government moved in and began installing politicians. If you have a look at uh, was, a... Uh, are you telling, can I just interrupt? You're telling me that sure. at that stage, and, and, and by the way, I'm in no position to argue with you because I don't know enough about it. That's why I'm pulling out the obscure examples. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Very good idea. But no, and I'll send you a link I, if you like. Uh, well, I, find, I, I just find it, I, I mean, just from a skeptical point of view, I just find it hard to believe that in that society, pre, you know, wheeling in these federal uh, representatives or whatever, I find it hard to believe there was no leadership, whether it, whether well, it, was, well, whether it was the, the leadership local, and government local minister two different things, or whether right? – sorry? Well, but as we talked about before, like leadership and government are two different things, right? I could lead you on a hike, but if I have to drag you along in a burlap sack, uh, that's a whole different thing, right? So you can have leaders. There were church leaders. There were business leaders. There were domestic leaders. There were educational systems which had leaders. But all of these were voluntary, right? You could participate or not participate in them as you saw fit. Like you can join a manufacturer's association that's totally optional. You can join, uh, you know, even certain unions that aren't state-sanctioned can be voluntary to join. But the imposition of a social agency with the right to use force in a non-contractual way, in a coercive, top-down way against citizens, was definitely absent from these uh, these colonies. And it wasn't easy to install, right? There was quite a lot of work to get these people uh, to accept the government again because they really didn't want it. Or if you look at some place like Singapore or Hong Kong, right? The, Hong Kong has, relative to Canada, right, it's like, it's like a 10% flat tax. Has, you know, the government is like 120th the size and so on. And, of course, uh, the economy is enormously beneficial, even though it's very crowded, right? And uh, uh, it's, um, it's got no natural resources and so on. But uh, because the degree of coercion within that society is far lower, even than here in Canada, uh, it uh, does that much better. I'm just, I'm just, uh, yeah, but even in, in Hong Kong there's coercion and there's a state. You may say it's relatively smaller, but it's still there. Oh, and absolutely, even, for sure. For and, sure. And, even with, and even with your examples uh, and some of the examples that uh, my good friend Andrew has been typing in about Pennsylvania, etc., I cannot believe that, um, that there wasn't government of some form. It may have been less formalized. It may be more informal. It may not be in a form that you'd recognize it now, but it must be there. 
I, I, I'm just well, very, sure, and, and you know, it, it's like what I'll do is, yeah, go sorry. ahead. Well, it's it's a bit like um, it's a bit like that old candid camera sort of um, you know gag where there's a, a car without an engine, and and you know guys you know stooges push it up a hill to a gas station, and you know the guy in the gas station goes to fill up the car and there's no engine. You know, if you <laughs> believe that the car went against gravity and, and actually got Get to it. the top itself. I mean, right, right. What I'm saying is, uh, and this is just <laughs> the, the, the doubter in me as a scientist. Yeah, look, you're uh, a scientist. You're, you're supposed to be skeptical, right? For sure. Yeah, exactly. It's a virtue. <laughs> yeah, it is, absolutely. I should be in government. Uh, so, but, <laughs> but, the, but, but the point is, I don't know enough about it. I'm way off my own territory here. I, I, I'm not as well versed in history as you or your colleagues in the chat room, so I'm kind of out of my depth quite a bit here. But what I'm just saying is, from a kind of anthropological perspective, I, I find it hard to believe that there have ever been a society without a government. It may be a government that's very uh, almost unrecognizable in juxtaposition to the, what you would call a government today, or what I would know as a government today, but nevertheless it is a government, and I'm sure it involves some coercion. Even if it, All right, even well, let, let's, uh, I don't know if you listen to the podcast, but I'll, I'll tell you what I'll promise to do. I'll promise I, to do I've some research on this. I've never, I, I never encountered yourself or your podcast or anything before. I stumbled on this ah. thing, but it might be fun. Okay, no, I appreciate that. Look, I certainly uh, really, am really enjoying this conversation. I hope it's useful to you, for you too. If you can type your email into the chat window, then I'll send you a link to uh, when I do the podcast where I'll go into more detail about the sort of stateless societies that have existed. But what I will say, and maybe you can, I'm not saying you will uh, agree with this, but I think that we can say, I would certainly make a strong case for, for the following, that when governments get smaller, societies do better, and there has been no example in history that I've ever come across where the government has become too small to sustain society. Societies get better when governments get smaller. And so far, there's no logical reason, right? It's sort of like saying, I've got this pill that makes your tumor go down, and the more of this pill that you take, uh, like the longer you take this pill, the smaller your tumor becomes. And then everybody stops taking the pill, before the tumor goes away, and then the tumor comes back, right? So there's no logical reason to say, well, if you kept taking this pill, the tumor would go away, and you'd even be healthier. So every time well, the, the government okay, well, shrinks, let, let, but let me give you another. Let me give you another alternative. I think we'd all say uh, a, a counter argument. I think we'll all agree that uh, having as much oxygen as possible in your ambient surroundings for you to breathe in is a good thing. And people have, uh, in an effort to combat disease or aging and all kinds of things, subjected themselves to hyperbaric chambers to breathe in more and sure. more oxygen, wacko jacko, etc. Um, <laughs> I think he's commonly termed. Um, and, 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 it, and it's used medically as an intervention. You know, people who have got uh, problems with their blood gas proportionality will be given oxygen. However, right. to say, well, let's increase having this good thing. Let's increase it and increase it. Why not have 100% oxygen? Surely that's logical. But in fact, 100% oxygen will kill you stone dead because you'll lose... Well, for sure, but, but I mean... Hypothalamus. And, and therefore, maybe it's more like that than it is with your tumor analogy. Well, I certainly would agree with you, but uh, now I'm going to try and, and wrestle your metaphor down and, and turn it against you. We'll, we'll see if I get thrown or not. But um, what happens then is as you increase the amount of oxygen that's going into somebody's system, they begin to show negative effects, right? I guess they get dizzy, they get uh, oxygen-rich blood, they you know, begin to have palpitations. And so you pull back from that, right? 
But in the example that I'm talking about of when you diminish the, the use of coercion, the initiation of force within society at an institutional level, right, in terms of the state and in terms of the church, every time that gets smaller and smaller, society gets better and better. So in the analogy of oxygen, when you increase oxygen, you start to get negative results, so you stop. Right, and so, but the, the difference is with the state. When you make the state smaller and smaller, there is no indication of a negative effect that shows up. Why people stop? The reason that people no, stop I, is I because the say, government. I have to say Sorry, that's a ahead. false comparison. That that's a false comparison because with the oxygen, the first sign you have that it's negative is when the person is dead. Okay, uh, it's pretty. It's it's pretty dramatic, and 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 it's established and it's well known in physiology that you don't give someone 100% oxygen because we have seen people with 100% oxygen die. We have that data that allows us to predict the future, that allows us to guide you know, our, our ideas about how to proceed. However, sure. we, do, we don't have the, that uh, parallel when it comes to sociology and government insofar as someone decreasing and decreasing uh, governmental interference in the state down towards zero and then you know, the consequence of that. We have no data. Because well, sure we do. Well, we Where do. do. No, and I, I sort of have to disagree with you there because if you look at something like the late 18th century, the American government was about one two hundredth the size that it is now. Okay, but let me say I agree with you that small government is better. Okay, let's say I right. agree with you that uh, less obtrusive government with minimal state interference is a much preferable um, state of affairs. That's a big difference between saying that we should then take it all away and have no government. Well, sure. I look, and I, I'm, not ex I'm not saying that, and, and it's a big pill to swallow, uh, and I'm not saying that it's even the right pill to swallow. I'm just sort of putting the case forward. But I think that if you and I can at least agree that a government that's 0.5% the size it is now is a better thing, then we can argue about that remaining 0.5% when we get there, right? But I certainly think that if we can find solutions that involve non-coercion within society, voluntary kind of ways of doing things, then that's definitely better. I would certainly make the case that you have to go to zero because the governments always grow, right? I mean, it took like 150 years, actually it took less than 100 years for the United States government to break the bonds of the original constitution and have a huge federal government and a civil war and fiat money and uh, public education and all this kind of stuff, and now it's just gone completely nuts. So government does seem to be something which you can't just sort of reduce it down a little bit. You can't reduce it down even a lot because it always grows back, and, and there's not much point fighting a big battle to get rid of an institution like yeah, the government again, or at least reduce get, it. Yeah, getting back down to tumors, you know, come back to my favorite field of science, you're saying that there's no point in shrinking it to a small level because it's just going to you know, come back. Yeah, the best you'll get so, is a remission so for a generation or two. Yeah, so let's, let's completely cut it out completely and therefore preserve the status quo that will ensue. But the difference between that um, this cancer analogy and, and, and society is spontaneous generation of governments. I believe that the governments will emerge anyway. You know, it, it, it will happen anyway. I, I, you know, it's almost like having a very specialized type of tumor whereby even if you remove it, this person's right. got a genetic marker, which means they're going to develop it again anyhow. So whilst it might be a good idea to shrink it and resect it as much as possible, you have to be resigned to the fact that this person is always going to be plagued by these growths. And I, well, I, I certainly think, agree that, yeah, go ahead, sorry. I, I just think my personal perspective, and I may not have too much philosophical argument or data to back it up, but my feeling is that woven in the psyche and the soul of mankind, in whichever way you know, we've been constructed, 
is this natural tendency towards abdicating responsibility to a leadership, which you may or may not call a government. And I think that even if you were somehow able to convince everyone in a big global Skype cast to throw off their governments and live in some kind of peaceful, uh, harmonious trading of experience and attributes and skills so that, you know, my plumber is, is fixing my faucets and I'm teaching his children science, etc., etc. I do believe that there would be naturally an emergence tendency towards this um, this idea of government and state again. You know, in the same way, you know, you can you can take ants and you can you can separate them from their colonies, but you put them together and the natural order will sort of emerge. I, it just seems to be something inherent to the psyche of man, and I'm not sure just, how. Just a moment. I'm just I'm just basking in the tan of your regard for your fellow man. Just a moment. I'm getting a good color in here. Um, no, look, I certainly understand that, that empirically you're absolutely and totally and completely correct. Everywhere across the world, there are hierarchical structures, whether they're theocracies or, or democracies or, or autocracies or dictatorships. Everywhere around the world and all throughout history, there are governments and this and that and the other. For sure, absolutely. But there is progress that is generally made in human society, as I mentioned, slavery, women's rights, even the scientific method, right? If you'd look at, uh, if you'd looked at the human race uh, prior to, you know, 500 years ago, you'd have said that human beings are just naturally non-scientific because there's no such thing as science, or at least not in the way that we would recognize it today. But when there is sort of conceptual leaps made forward, then uh, human nature does change. And the problem with trying to understand human nature right now, which brings us right back to where we started, is that human nature right now is heavily conditioned by, I would say, pretty wretched parenting and also, you know, 14 years of being taught by the state about politics and, and all this kind of stuff. So I would be hesitant and maybe, I mean, you, you could be right, right? But I would be hesitant about saying this is human nature because right now it's like saying, well, gee, everyone who grew up in Stalin's time turned into a communist, so human beings are innately communist. It's like, no, that's just how they're raised. So I'd certainly think that you might not want to mistake what people sort of believe at the moment. And, of course, in, in, if you look at uh, in Germany, Eastern, Eastern Germany, uh, East Germany, in like the 80s, you'd say, well, look, everybody's a communist because they all go to, you know, they're communist cadres, they go to the evening meetings and so on. But the moment that communism was lifted, everybody said, great, I'm now going to be a capitalist, or, you know, pretty much everybody. So I think that people kind of react a lot to their circumstances and the environment of thinking that's around them. I see and what you're that saying, but I, think, but I think the communist, the communist uh, imposition on, this, on, on people was artificial, and therefore people reverted to type, which is, I think we are naturally capitalists. I think that's quite true as well. Now, we're getting a little bit of grumbling because we've had a nice hour-and-a-half-long chat. I'm yeah. going to just open up the mics to everyone else. I certainly really appreciate uh, that you've come in. I and, do and apologize to really other people if, uh, if I have hogged the microphone. I would just like to say before I disappear that uh, Andrew seems to, to define successful conversation as one in which I fundamentally change my worldview, which is kind of strange. Well, no, because we've because got next week the process that. of talking that makes it a success. The, uh, right, and of course, you, it, I think if I, you know, the other thing I'll say too is that if I had come across as somebody who just wanted to change you and had no doubt or uncertainty that it would not have been a conversation that would have lasted or been enjoyable, right? Well, I think we should get Andrew on the microphone because he's obviously uh, got a lot to say. Andrew, are you, uh, do you, are you mic'd this week? Yeah, I'm here. Ah, okay, go ahead. Uh, I'm just going to, you and uh, uh, the gentleman I've been chatting with, 
uh, is uh, have been uh, have been unmuted. Uh, I don't really have much to say. I just I <laughs> I don't know. I don't like to carry on conversations for such lengths when the person I'm talking to won't accept basic facts. Uh, I mean, in the beginning of the conversation, like that's. I don't know. That's just my style. Well, they, but they're basic. They're basic to people who are familiar with this particular approach to philosophy. They're certainly not basic uh, to the general population, which doesn't mean that we're right. It just means that uh, when you're unfamiliar with things, it takes a little while to sort of under, to understand them. And I'm not saying that. Uh, I think this gentleman did a very valiant effort of of arguing the opposite position, but we also did. Uh, I, I think make some. Uh, can I just say, I wasn't trying to argue the opposite position. I didn't come into this thinking, well, I'm I'm damn well going to try and refute everything you say. I, I'm, I'm interested in, in the, the search for truth, whatever that may be, and I like interchanging ideas with people. So I've conceded many points, actually, Andrew. I, I yeah, conceded many sure. points that Stefan uh, made. So yes, I can see your point. Um, so to say that I haven't actually modified my cognitive schema at all and I haven't budged at all is, is obviously uh, would suggest you weren't really following what happened. And it does suggest really that this is a kind of process whereby participants, in order for this Skypecast to have been a success, will become apostles of a new way of thinking, which I, which I would say is, is perhaps a bad way of looking at it, and perhaps the best way of looking at the Skypecast is that an interchange of idea, ideas, even if they're not completely overlapping by the end, the interchange itself is healthy and stimulating, and that's how I would define it as being a success. And, and for me, for certain, it's very important that people who don't agree with the premises that certainly I sort of take for granted that having conversations around that is important because you can never re-examine your own premises too often, right? I wanted to bring in uh, one point earlier. Um, Michael had, had said about, well, how do you know that it's... I, I forget exactly how it was framed, but the point I wanted to bring in was about um, that at some point you have to act um, and you have to act on what you know to the best of your knowledge, you know. So I, I sort of want to bring the analogy in of, um, like, you know, if the best of your knowledge is, is Newtonian physics, then you're going to build a rocket ship based on that. And if the best math that you have, uh, you know, if the best premise that you have is um, um, relativity, then you're going to build a rocket ship based on those mathematics. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue of checking your premises and going on the best of, of your knowledge, you know. So the thing applies to morality and... And when we check our premises, um, you know, when someone says that, you know, government, or let's say someone says America is good, right? Well, as scientists, we want to check that premise. The premise is that there's such a thing as America, right? So how do we check it? Well, we ask them. We say, well, what do you mean when you say America? And, well, we sort of draw it out, and we find that, well, people act. People are moral agents. And when you judge actions, you can judge people's actions, not America's actions, because there is no America to judge. And I think that was the... So I, I think that was one uh, point that I, I don't know I wanted to get in earlier was that at some point you're going to have to act and and the best of our our knowledge is, is people are acting and that's what I'm going to act on. I ask you a question. Can I ask you a question, Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. You you seem to, to be quite uh, enthusiastic about me conforming to the way that you and Stefan see things, which is a reasonable desire because if you feel that you've got the right way of understanding something, you would like it if more people shared that idea. That's natural. In the textbooks, you called me a fucking idiot and a doof. Do you think that's conducive to perhaps making me be more aligned to the way you think, or do you think that's perhaps a little bit self-defeating? Uh, not to mention rude. 
No, I don't think it was very conducive to anything. It's not particularly nice, is it? If we're honest. Your silence speaks volumes. Thank you. Right, and this is what I mean when I say that uh, British people are very nice and uh, yet have a bit of a sledgehammer as far as social stuff goes, which I certainly respect as well. And I, I have no problem with people being assertive or even aggressive in conversations, but I think that it's something that you should carry to the person directly if uh, that is your uh, your preferred method of interacting. So, right. so it's, it's, I'm going to... The sorry, value judgment, a derogatory value judgment given to someone just because they don't conform with your beliefs, which I think is a little bit sad. Right, and of course, uh, as I've talked about uh, in some articles that I've written for various websites, there was a, a time when I believed quite the opposite of what I believe now, and I certainly would not say that I was sort of uh, an idiot beforehand. It's just, you know, I've tried to expand my knowledge and tried to be, you know, as consistent as I can be. And, 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 perhaps, that way. and perhaps you would go through another reversal and perhaps look back on this and think that, uh, you know, similarly, you know, you were not an idiot when you were an idiot. Right, right. You might evolve beyond that too, if if that's the case. I mean, do you for think sure, you've reached sure. your final kind of uh, encapsulation of truth? No, that's uh, that's actually scheduled for tomorrow. So oh, good. Uh, good. obviously, I'm close. I'm just not thing. quite there. <laughs> no, of course, it's a lifelong <laughs> process, right? So. Now, the mind I mean, you guys are obviously. Uh, certainly, yeah, I would put myself down as a market anarchist, which is not, but a certain kind of anarchist who believe that there is no such thing as property rights, which I find quite silly. But uh, definitely I would put myself down as a voluntarist sort of property rights-based organization of society is the best way for things to, to work. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, definitely the case. Let, let's put sort of... Sorry, sorry, sorry. Andrew? I'm sorry, somebody just jumped in? Hello? I think this was uh, Adi. You know, it's always the case that, that uh, the people ramp up uh, right right to the end. I'm not sure if I'm not getting my time zones uh, across very well, but it always seems to be the case. Now, uh, the you mics are really open if anybody else... Sorry. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, the Karen, open up to other people. I, I've, uh, I've taken... Well, no, it's okay. If, if other people don't have anything, anything to say, for sure, uh, you know, go, go for it. <laughs> Hello? Hello. Hello. I called you an idiot in response to, to when you said that you want the benign dictatorship. I, I'm sorry. I'm going to obey. Okay, but let's say you, if I was to say okay, that, I, I just uh, hang on one sec. I'm just going to mute everyone except you two, just uh, because uh, we've got uh, an exciting amount of uh, background noise there. So, uh, I'm sorry, Michael. Please go ahead. Okay, if I was to say that I thought a benign dictatorship was the ultimate form of government, you may find that concept and that construct in itself idiotic. I have no problem with that, in which case attack my idea. But to say, therefore, that I'm an idiot shows that you have a difficulty in separating people from their beliefs. Okay, I'm sorry, I, I retract. I'll just, I'll just call that idea extremely idiotic. I, I don't mean to call you an idiot. In your opinion. No, it's not my opinion. It's well, it is until opinion. it's proven, right? It, it's, a, it's a quantifiable fact, is it? The idea is, is the idea that a benign dictatorship could exist and would be the ideal form of government is is uh, not based on any fact. <laughs> well, we're, we're talking about social sciences here and philosophy, which the, is no, we have to talk about epistemology. Everything we know is based on fact. Sense perception, logic, concept formation, that's the process of reason. Everything we know is factual. Everything you know is factual. No matter what area 
it doesn't matter what area of science you're talking about. It can be biology, physics, uh, uh, morality. Be, morality is everything not Morality but it certainly is the science. case that morality is not currently perceived as a science. I think that there are ways to approach ethics that can be a little bit more scientific. But certainly right now, the general perception is that morality is not a science. And there's certainly some progress that we're trying to make Carl along those Potter? lines. Yes. You, yeah, and preparing ideas about what is a science, a proto-science, a pre-science, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, morality is just almost off the scale. It's, it's something... Uh, <laughs> Which doesn't even dwell in the same kind of universe as science when it comes to the idea oh of having God. a universe. The universe is factual. Absolutely. Look, I mean, I'm totally aware that morality is considered to be, at best, a vaguely localized cultural preference uh, by many scientists. And I certainly, and, and absolutely, for sure, when I say cultural preference, I definitely mean that it's generally perceived to be subjective, for sure. And I'm certainly, you know, with perhaps the arrogance of the ages, <laughs> I am trying to uh, take a good swing at trying to define a set of ethics that is a little bit less subjective. That's sort of my, my, my life goal at the moment, which is uh, causing me to break quite a, an extraordinary amount of mental sweat and may all amount to nothing whatsoever. But uh, for sure, uh, the people who have uh, listened to podcasts that I've worked on before, read some of my articles, know that I'm trying to grapple the beast of the ages and move ethics into a little bit more of an objective kind of realm. But uh, that requires a uh, quite okay. lengthy uh, discussion, which might be certainly not the case right. that we can get into right now. If you're going to say that morality is not based on fact, then what is it based on? Well, I associate facts. I associate facts with things that are objectively empirically demonstrable, and you cannot get that with morality. You cannot. You. I mean, most of the things that we take as being morally correct, there is no equation or no data which suggests that it is. It's just a received cultural wisdom. If I say to you, murder is wrong, would you agree, and, uh, Andrew? No, no, that, that perceived, received cultural wisdom has nothing to do with it. If I'm on an island alone Andrew. by myself, I have to be absolutely moral. I have to find some food. I have to find some shelter. That's the whole point of it. I have to use my knowledge of my surroundings to... Can animals be moral? No, they're not moral. Find food and shelter. I don't understand what you're saying here about being on an island. Well, morality is not something that comes from outside of you. Morality is, uh, we're talking about the study of preferred human behavior, and, and uh, that exists whether or not you are in a relationship with other people at, at any given moment. You have to, you know, a value is something which you work to achieve or gain. So if I'm working for food, that's my value. So what's right for me and is to true. achieve my values, to work for this food. If that's what's right for you, it doesn't make it objectively correct course of action. But let me let me ask you a question, Andrew. Is murder wrong? Yes. And is that a fact that it's wrong? Yes. How could you prove to me that fact that murder is wrong? I mean, I agree with you, murder is wrong. But is it a fact? Or is well, that just murder goes against murder goes against values. <laughs> I mean, if I'm if I'm walking down the street, yeah, it definitely uh, goes against I, I your, your values and my values. But some people are quite happy with it. Well, values are, as I said, based on fact, and, and therefore are common, just as all facts are common. Okay, so if murder being incorrect course of action is a value, and if according to you values are based on fact, what is the underlying fact 
that justifies the perspective that murder is incorrect. Now, I, I, I agree it's wrong. I agree with you that it's wrong, I, I, of course. Um, but I wouldn't say that, um, that, that you can say it's a fact that it's wrong. I, I'd say that it is the modal perception of mankind cross-culturally that it's not a good thing to do. Although, of course, in history, that wasn't always the case. There was human sacrifice and all kinds of stuff. But what I'm saying is, um, you would agree that stealing is wrong, murdering is wrong, rape is wrong, etc. And I would agree with you totally. But we are now in the realms of talking about sociology, and it's, you can't say it's a fact. If I tell you that um, protons are positively charged, that's a fact. But if I say to you, uh, murder is wrong, I say, that's what I believe. They're in a totally different realm. There's a different order of certainty and certitude in these, in these perspectives. You know, and I think that's the problem I have a lot of so-called social scientists, which I think in itself is a bit of an oxymoron, is that the, the people are trying their best, and it's quite an honourable quite an honourable thing to do, to try and apply scientific method and methodologies in perceiving something as big as a society. But I don't think that you can say that morality, morality is based on fact. Morality is subjective. I mean, Andrew, do you, do you agree with abortion? Let me just ask you. Andrew. Hello. Do, 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 do. Oh, he's, he's uh, his mic. mic's off. He's off the mic. Look, I mean, the, these questions that you have, perfectly valid, right? I mean, the fundamental problem of ethics is that you can't get an ought from an is, right? You can't get a should from the way that the universe actually works. Without a I, doubt, no question, Addy completely concede that point. Oh, sorry, you I, speak? I interrupted it. Addy wants to speak. Uh, yes, uh, sorry, just one sec. Let's, uh, I just, I just find it arrogant thing. that uh, social philosophers will talk with, with kind of certainties as if, as if they were in a laboratory. Right, right. And, and it, it, I think also without sensitivity to the fact that let's just say that some mind-brain-spanning genius has managed to prove uh, certain ethical theories of being objective, I think it's certainly very important to understand that that generally is considered to be fairly impossible and is rather a remarkable task to try and achieve. And if you have achieved it, then you need to be sensitive to the fact that it's quite a skeptical feat to... to people can rightly be skeptical of the possibility of it. Sorry, go ahead, Adi. Uh, Adi, uh, your mic is... Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, no, your mic is off, Adi. Your mic is on. Uh, hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Oh, all right, because uh, it uh, shows up as muted over here. Yeah. <clears throat> so my approach uh, here would be to uh, to apply some sort of um, discrimination. Uh, we can use that word. Uh, when I'm engaging in conversation with someone, I'm not going to my time and uh, try to debate morality with someone who's trying to kill me, right? So I think we can go on a person-by-person -person basis. I don't think it would be inconsistent, but it would show our um, it would show our unwillingness to engage in in uh, in a rational debate with with someone who wants to take away our our rights. Who because by by even by engaging in simple conversation. Um, we recognize uh, their their uniqueness as a person. We recognize their autonomy. We recognize, for instance, their right to live. We don't 
kill them right away. We recognize their integrity as uh, as human beings, as persons. So there are a lot of people that there are a lot of things that we already concede just by engaging in conversation. And and I think that's uh, that's a point that should be into consideration. Yeah, no, I've, I've I definitely. This is a debate that's going on in another group that I'm involved in around argumentation ethics. That if I start to have a debate with somebody, then I'm accepting an enormous amount of of sort of factual or or logical axioms. Right, that debate is better than force. That rationality is better than you know simple emotional assertion and so on. And so there's a certain amount of things which we accept in the very act of debating that uh, are values that we then have to remain consistent with through the course of that debate. And, and those th- and certainly things are, are very true. It's not, I think, gets us to the place where uh, we get to proving morality, right, which is the holy grail of philosophy and something which, you know, many, many people have died trying to get to the, that particular summit. But uh, And certainly we should take a swing at it if we like. It's a very... A very uh, challenging concept to try and get universal ethics across in a non-subjective manner without reference to any sort of religious or, or uh, spiritual uh, authorities, and that's, that's a real challenge. Certainly something that I've been spending the last couple of years working on to various degrees of success, because of course if you can solve that uh, particular problem, then I think you've done quite a bit of good for mankind, but uh, it's still something which remains uh, not accepted by the vast majority of people as yet, which is perfectly right, of course, because uh, it hasn't been proven to, to people's satisfaction in general. So I'm we going can, to unmute. Okay. We Sorry, can, we can uh, reduce this to, to the individuals. Um, I think it's also a part of, um, of uh, our general philosophy. We don't recognize the existence of abstract entities, just, just individuals. We don't recognize other kinds of actors or other kinds of beings, right? So I think we can also use this, uh, this approach on individual by individual basis. We, we don't need necessarily, I think there's uh, an interference here. Okay. Uh, yeah. we, we don't need we don't need uh, necessarily to have sort of absolute right. Oh boy, if that was the answer, it was a real shame because you got kind of chewed up at uh, at the end there. Let me just um, uh, if you could just repeat your last sentence there, Eddie. I'd yeah, appreciate it. I think we don't necessarily need uh, absolute rules. I think we can maybe uh, agree to some rules, but in um, in morality we can choose to engage in in debates and conversation with uh, with people who agree at least on on some of our our premises and i don't think it's controversial to say that uh, murder is wrong right i think there there is some commonality in human beings and even if they they have been they have grown in various different systems yeah and and under very different uh, kinds of um, authority and uh, state aggression and everything else, I think there, there is some some sort of common common idea we we can we can exploit here in in conversation, and um, it's not special. It's just uh, I think with the human nature, but I wouldn't uh, um, be so adventurous as to go down that path. Um, so how does that that idea sound? Well, for me at least, I mean, the, the idea that murder is is evil or murder is wrong, let's just say, to not to use a less inflammatory term, is generally accepted by most human beings. However, uh, unfortunately, they invent other categories like soldiers and policemen and so on, to whom murder is not only legitimate but absolutely required, 
right? And so this is where you have trouble when it comes to ethics. If everybody believed that uh, theft was immoral and murder and rape were wrong, then we'd be on a much better footing. But unfortunately, people invent things like the state, where which have totally opposite. Uh, the people who are in the state or the people who are in a soldier's uniform seem to have completely opposite moral principles that people accept. Like you can go over and kill a whole bunch of Iraqis and so on. And so that's where the real challenge comes in, as far as I can see, for uh, ethics as a whole, that there may be agreement in particular instances, but according to general abstract notions like armies and governments and so on, there seems to be people who, under the umbrella of those abstract concepts, have completely opposing moral rules, so I don't think it can be called much of a science at the moment. Well, we can appeal also to consistency. Uh, I think if uh, an ordinary person... Uh, observe some sort of contradictory uh, conclusion in uh, his premises, I think he will see that at least there is a problem. Yeah? So uh, that, that aspect can be touched upon as well. I certainly think it's the case that a, a logically consistent moral theory is better than one that's just a whole bunch of opinions, and that's certainly what we're sort of trying to work for, certainly what I'm trying to work towards in the thinking that I'm putting into the subject. So. Uh, everybody else is unmuted. If you wanted to add any, we try and sort of wind up after roughly two hours or so. Uh, but if uh, anybody has anything that they want to add or any other comments, uh, the the mics are wide open, everybody. Uh, feel free to, to jump in. Uh, <clears throat> hello, this is Laprafrax. Um, All right, let me just uh, mute you. Uh, and uh, Sorry, let me just mute everyone and unmute you. Please feel free to go ahead. Yeah, hi. Um, yeah, as I say, I'm Laprafrax. Um but it's a question for Quinn, basically. Um, yeah, I'm English too. Uh, I'm very popular on here. Everyone likes me. <laughs> Actually, I think we Brits have got the market cornered now. Yeah, I just want to say, well, this is a question about state education, basically. Um, okay. Do you really think state education teaches people properly? Just depends what you mean by teach properly. You have to define, obviously, at the outset. I believe that there is a problem with state education because it doesn't it doesn't teach critical thinking skills. Um, even in my own subject of science, people are taught to internalize and regurgitate a body of knowledge content which calls itself science, which is not, of course, what science is at all. It's a way of thinking. So perhaps not. No, I'm not saying I never I never proposed that the state education system was uh, in any way ideal. So don't you think or believe that um, well, so that's one major reason why state education should not be continued or should be dismantled? Um, basically speaking from my own experience, um, <clears throat> sorry, in England, uh, state education ranges from five years to 16 years. And I think most of the knowledge I value today, I did not learn in school. Um, so basically, yeah, 11 years of my life I consider wasted. Now, what is the point of basically the government providing education if it does not, yeah, as I say, it does not teach people properly? You mean so in terms of thinking critically and so on? Um, to, to a degree, yes. But, but well, okay, in my opinion, education should be about teaching people or children about the world around them and how they can properly interact as an adult. Um, Do you not feel that. that you learnt that at school? I mean, forget forget the classroom. Just in the just in the schoolyard, did you not learn sort of social skills and? Well, of course, of course, you learn social skills, but 
<laughs> so you probably learned a lion's share. Can I, may I just say you probably learned a lion's share of that in an educational context, even if it wasn't in the classroom. Plus skills like being able to read and write. I presume you you learned within those times. So it's not as yeah, if it's a, a wholly wasted experience, well, even okay. if it's far from ideal, which I will agree with you on. Well, okay, yes, of course I learned to read and write, basic mathematics, adding, subtracting, etc. But, um, you have to watch your absolute statements around Michael, uh, and I certainly appreciate that. I think that's quite correct <laughs> because he got me a couple of times, and quite rightly so on this. But, but, but to be honest with you, um, you know, I, I agree with you that it's far from, far from ideal. And I would say that the, the lessons that you learn in the schoolyard or on the school bus are, are probably, you know, equally important as, as, as learning base, basic mathematics and, and uh, grammar sentence construction because you know at school you inter you know school you know as a microcosm of society is a place where you're learning some of the values of society like you know that you know biting your classmate will not make you popular but giving him one of your chocolate cookies might make you more popular and basic social skills like this but i agree with you it's far from it's far from perfect but is that therefore does that give us the mandate to, to wholesale throw it out i don't know well, and of course, I think what you're saying is that the, the the best education goes on wherever the teachers are absent. Well, I don't dispute that. Yes, I'm doing social skills, <laughs> and you and you need social skills to exist in life. But I yeah. think, for example, if you would, sorry, no, that's fine. Carry on, uh, sorry. <clears throat> but then again, the adult world is more than or is 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 more extensive than simply possessing basic social skills. For example, why why don't they teach politics in school, for example? That is something that everyone else everyone's life in the society. It's only oh I agree with you life. totally. It's only in the last, say, five years that I've become politically aware. But that was only by my own instigation, not not by anything I was taught in a school context or setting. And I really find that sad. Oh, I, I totally agree. I totally, personally, agree with you. That's why I think, you know, it's nonsense to say we live in a democracy because a democracy, in my mind, my humble opinion, would be one in which every individual of the society is free to choose. But the freedom to choose, you're only really free to choose if you know what the options are. And as most people in our society are not significantly aware of the political arguments, then are they free to choose? And if not, is it, does that mean it's a democracy? And if not, what do we do about it? Do we do the kind of platonic idea of take away their vote and say, we'll decide for you? Well, obviously, I don't believe in that. But what do we do about it? <clears throat> well, I would say that where, where, the, free, where, where the freedom to choose and the, the right to choose shows up the most is in the supermarket. And I know that that sounds a little silly, but uh, when you go to the supermarket, you can choose what you want to eat, and your choice doesn't rob other people of their choice about what to eat. And in the free market, uh, you have all of these kinds of choices, and it's kind of like a dollar democracy, right? That the things that succeed are the things that people actually want as goods and services. I think that's a fairly much greater representation of something called democracy than a sort of uh, one-size-fits-all, winner-takes-all, once-every-couple-of-years kind of uh, uh, first-person-past-the-gate-gets-to-control-all-the-guns situation that the state uh, represents. So I think there are good models of working democracies. They just don't tend to be uh, political. They tend to be more economic, in my view. 
Well, Quinn, um, as a market anarchist myself, like Steph, I'll do away with state education tomorrow if I have the chance. Um, I just think that the free market could... Um, yeah, I just believe that the free market could offer basically better education than the state could. Um, in the free market, I believe, um, schools and education institutions will not be mandated by, well, in England we have the national curriculum, which is, a, which is a, in reference to what I said earlier, basically does not teach you, well, to what adult life, in, in inverted commas. Uh, where's the can I just ask you? Can I put you up now? Where, where is the deficiency? You say it doesn't teach you. Well, what what doesn't it teach you? What is it that you felt was lacking? I mean, you're obviously talking first. For, for, in the first instance, you're talking anecdotally because you're you're subjectively relating it to your own experience, which may or may not have been a good one. Well, well, yeah, well. So what was the deficiency in, in state education? What did it not teach you that you needed to be taught, that you now know now? And if, well, it's to be a, if it's to be an anarchist, well, that's based on the assumption that anarchy is correct, which, again, you don't know as a fact, even though Andrew seems to think that facts abound everywhere. It's, it's an opinion. It's a philosophy. It's your personal philosophy, which, of course, you'd be entitled to, and I respect that. But is it a fact? Of course not. Well, sorry, let me just interrupt there for one moment because, of course, uh, you're absolutely correct that, that uh, anarchy is really just about respecting other people's opinions. If you want to send your kids to a different school, marry a different woman, get a job in a different neighborhood, trade with Iran, Iraq, whatever you want to do, as long as you're not using force against other people, that you can choose all of those things, whereas a state society is one where the opinions of the majority, even if we put it that charitably, are inflicted upon the minority, which is very intolerant. Well, we can just we can talk about facts or the cows come home, but um, I'm just saying, well, <laughs> we can talk about it till the cows come home. But in uh, whilst we're waiting for that herd to 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 rear, you know reappear on the horizon, in the in the time that elapses in between, very few people are able actually to give any examples of facts. You know, it, <laughs> you know. I mean, I'm a scientist, but even even in science, we see that in quantum physics. What we perceive, you know, through the kind of Newtonian lenses, or even through Einsteinian relativistic lenses, aren't, aren't facts. I mean, if you come across Schrödinger's cat, have any of you come across Schrödinger's cat? Yes, yes, I know that one. I think that would blow uh, Andrew's mind. Actually, he'd, he'd be thinking there's all kinds of facts where they don't exist. Do now, I would like to force with each other. Just be careful, Rod, or I shall put electrodes in your temple and pass a large current into your brain, if you agree with me, okay? <laughs> now, I would say that I would love to get into the discussion of to what degree can facts be considered valid within social science, because, of course, if they can't, then we might as well all just be speaking foreign languages to each other because there's no way to establish any kind of, of truth, and we will have to kind of start from the basics. But uh, for me, that would be, have to be a conversation that we could pick up next week. So I'd certainly like to thank everyone who joined in uh, uh, on the conversation, particularly our new friend Michael, who had some excellent, excellent questions and comments. And I think it's hugely valuable to get, uh, obviously, a, a rigorous and logical scientist uh, involved in the discussion. It, it can't do anything but help us uh, who are trying to put forward ideas in a consistent and logical manner to have uh, people who don't always agree with our premises uh, come and bring uh, very rational and, and intelligent questions to the, to, the, uh, to the forefront. So I really appreciate that, and I hope that it was as enjoyable for you uh, as it was for me. 
and uh, hope that you'll join us next week and we can have a chat about this question of uh, facts within the social sciences and at least approaches that we've taken uh, to trying to solve this particular kind of problem because it is a very pressing problem if you look at the variety of, of moral philosophies around the world and the fact that we do seem to have moral philosophies that are pretty consistent with like don't kill, don't steal but then we have institutions like armies and states which seem to be perfectly comfortable to have not only the right but in fact the obligation to do just that and I think it's well worth having a chat about that so I hope that you all will come back and join Join us again next Sunday at uh, 4 o'clock. Uh, the website is freedomainradio.com, where you can find the podcasts and the videos. And, uh, uh, Michael, if you feel like falling asleep, I've done a couple on metaphysics and epistemology, which uh, hopefully will at least tie in what we're trying to do relative to the scientific method, which is the system of belief that I have the most respect for uh, in, in any kind of uh, philosophy. So hopefully you'll give us a, um, a, a, a try again next week. Thank you so much, everyone, for for joining in, and have yourselves a fantastic week.